Please turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Back in Galatians 5 this morning. Um, Some of you will immediately relate to this illustration. Some of you are just going to have to anticipate it. But when you get married, you make sacrifices and make sacrifices in a variety of areas. You you, uh, try to learn to love things that you previously had absolutely no interest in. And uh, my wife has made lots of those sacrifices for me. I've tried to make some for her as well. I've tried to get interested in dance stuff, dancing. And, you know, because I don't really, I've never felt the need to be a dancer or good at dancing or anything like that. But she loves dancing. Like around our house, dancing just spontaneously happens all the time. People burst into dance. Not me, but others in our house do. So I found out that River Dance is coming. College Station, Texas, and as an act of pure sacrificial love for my wife, I forked over a lot of cash, and I took her to River Dance. And I figured, you know, I've got my, my cell phone with me, and it's got, which got a lot of other stuff on it. In case <laughs> River Dance isn't great, I can, but you know what, I'll tell you, I never looked at it. It was, it was awesome. I, I, I stand corrected about River Dance anyway. And, and I was amazed at the end of the show. I said, I would watch that again, Tracy. That was really amazing. It was remarkable. I was, I was amazed at the athleticism of these people. I mean, even though they didn't remember to move their arms sometimes. But they, it was so athletic, and they had incredible endurance. Like for two and a half hours with just short breaks, they're going and going and going. I thought I would just be totally wiped out. I'd be sweating, falling on the ground. I was amazed at that. I was also amazed at how they moved in unison. You know, it's just really remarkable how they had practiced and, and every step they were doing it all together. It was really cool. But at the end of the show, I'll tell you honestly, I didn't feel any compulsion to learn to river dance myself. You know, I, I don't need to be a river dancer. That's okay. But we have opportunity to dance every once in a while. Tristy and I, when we go to like a wedding or something. And she just wants me to dance so badly. There's a reception afterwards and she said, you know, please dance. And so, I, you know, I get out onto the floor and I'm actually what happens is for a half an hour, she just begs and begs and begs. And finally I break down. She drags me onto the floor and we start to dance. And I got to tell you, when we dance together, we look good. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm totally serious. You're laughing. We look good when we dance together because I don't lead. Like, I know the man is supposed to lead, right? That's how dancing works with, when the man and woman are together. But I've learned that, um, you know, she can just kind of press on my hand, and I know which direction to go. And then she presses here, and I know to go that way. And so she's just kind of, kind of pressing real lightly. And it looks like I'm leading. We step off the floor, you know, and people, wow, that's really good. But it looks best when I just kind of go like this. You know, and she just dances around and stuff. And then we come off, and they go, wow, man, you guys are great. And I say, no, she's great, and I don't stink. But we look really good when she is leading, okay? She could dance with anybody and make them look good because she's that good. Now, you didn't maybe ever see this in Galatians chapter 5 when you read it before, but that's what Paul's talking about, okay? It doesn't really come out in the English translation, but I want you to look at Galatians chapter 5 and verse 25. That's an illustration of the spiritual life, or life with the Spirit. Verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Or better, since we have life through the Spirit. We are alive through the Spirit. It's a first-class conditional sentence. It means we are alive in the Spirit. If you have believed in Jesus Christ, 
then God has removed the dead of your sin and placed his spirit in you forever. You have life through the spirit. Now, since we have life through the spirit, Paul says, let us keep in step with the spirit. That's a better translation. Write it in your margin there. Keep in step with the spirit. When you dance with the spirit, so to speak, and the spirit is leading and the spirit is whispering in your ear or pressing this direction or pressing this direction, you're moving in unison with the spirit. People look at your life and you step off the dance floor, so to speak, and they say, wow, you really dance well. Your life is really amazing. And you can turn and you can point and say, that's because of the spirit of God inside of me. Okay, that's, that's the spiritual life. When the Spirit is in control and you're listening to his voice and he's guiding and moving and directing you, people see your good works and they glorify your Father who is in heaven. What I'd like to do for us this morning is I'm going to give us just a, a really quick overview of spiritual life. And the way that I want to do that is I'm going to give you some major categories of theology and break down this whole process of moving with the Spirit. The place that we have to start is with anthropology. Anthropology is the study of man. Anthropology is answering the question very simply, who are you? Who are you? The best place to start if you're answering that question is obviously where it all began, Genesis chapter 1. The first emergence of men and women on the face of the earth. Who are we? Genesis chapter 1, read with me in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And God spoke to them and they heard his voice and he said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. If you want to understand who you are, the most important thing to know is that you are a creature made in the image of God. You bear the image and the likeness of the creator of the universe. And there's nothing else among all of creation that bears the image and the likeness of God except men and women. What does it mean to be in the image of God? Let me give you four characteristics. First, it means that you are a person. You're personal. God has personality and you have personality. God is spirit and you are a spiritual being. And because of that fact, you have the capacity for a personal relationship with God. Which no other animal can have. No other created being can have. Only men and women can have a personal relationship with God because we're made in the image of God. A very essential part of the nature of God is that he's a personal God. Second, you're powerful. You're powerful, or at least you have the potential for power. Men and women were given a commission. God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. I want you to rule on my behalf. You will rule, you will reign, you will exercise dominion on behalf of God over all of the earth. 
There will not arise a species of horses that evolve and take over the earth. And we submit to those horses because they're ruling over all of mankind or dogs or cats or how many other animals you may love. They're not going to rule. We're going to rule. Okay? Because we're made in the image of God, that's, that's power. To be made in the image of God also means that you are a moral being or a being that has moral capacity, the capacity to know and understand right and wrong, to choose between right and wrong because God is moral. God has a personality and at the heart of his personality is the fact that he's holy and he's righteous and he's good and he's kind and he's just. And if you can sum up in one word biblically all of these attributes of the personality of God, it is the word glory. God's glorious. That word in Hebrew, it means weighty or heavy. God is very different, but glory doesn't mean just heaviness. It also means splendor or brilliance. God is radiant. He's, he's, he's got splendor. Uh, he, he's amazingly beautiful. Whenever a creature has an opportunity to actually see even just a portion of the glory of God, it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming visually and physically and, and spiritually and emotionally. And, and normally uh, people will fall down at his feet or they'll back up. They'll be pushed back because of the glory, the radiance, the splendor of God. And you, as creatures made in the image of God, have the capacity to reflect or radiate the beauty of God. I want you to uh, listen. I'm going to just read you one passage here from Daniel chapter 12. Daniel's talking about the end times. Daniel 12 verse 3, he says, Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever. Let me read this to you again. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. Imagine looking into the sky when the sun is at its peak. And those who lead many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. Uh, Some have taken that as a, a figurative statement. I think it's literal. I think it's literal. Because you're made in the image of God, you have the capacity to actually radiate and reflect physically even, the beauty of God. God is glorious. He has splendor. And when people come in contact with him, what happens? Well, they begin to absorb that splendor. Think about the angels who are in the presence of God and then people see them. What happens? They fall down. They want to worship because they're radiating the splendor. They're bright and they're shining and they're glorious and they're beautiful and they're powerful and they're tempted to worship. The angels know that's not a good idea, but they're reflecting the glory of God. When people come in contact with the glory of God, what happens to them? Remember Moses up on the mountain and for 40 days, he's he's interacting with God face to face, it says. He's probably not seeing all of the glory of God, which would probably crush him, but he's getting an image of the glory of God as they speak face to face. And Moses doesn't realize what's happening, but when he comes down from the mountain, he walks up to the people of Israel and they go, whoa, Moses, you're killing us. Cover up. Cover your face. We cannot stand to look at the beauty of your splendor. And so Moses lives the rest of his life with a sheet over his face. 
Because he's been in the presence of God, he literally, literally, not figuratively, literally glows. You will be glorious. You may have woken up this morning, you didn't feel glorious. You didn't have your first cup of coffee yet. You're not feeling real great or whatever. Let me give you an image of who you really are and who you will become. Because you're made in the image of God, you can have a personal relationship with God. You will exercise power over God's creation, dominion. You will be rightly related with God and you will be holy and perfect and just and you will also radiate the very beauty and the splendor and the majesty of God. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. That's Genesis chapter 1. Unfortunately, Genesis chapter 3 comes shortly thereafter. What happens in Genesis chapter 3, in a sense, is a veil of darkness, of sin and death, gets thrown over that image of the beauty of God reflected in Adam and Eve. But the image itself is not removed. I would describe it like this. The image is defaced, but it is not erased. The image of God is still there. But it's not shining clearly. Why? Because men and women are separated spiritually. There's a a break in that fellowship. When they were walking with the Lord in the cool of the garden, it was like a dance because their spirit was united with God's spirit. And so wherever God directed and led, they moved in perfect unison. It was like a dance. And people would look at that if they could. The angelic host did look at this and they said, that's beauty. Men and women moving in perfect unison with God. But the moment that they sinned, there was spiritual death, not spiritual non-existence. Their spirit didn't cease to exist. Their spirit wasn't functioning as it was designed to function because it wasn't in dependence upon God. It was trying to operate separately or independently from God. So now instead of when God pressed here or whispered, go here, they pushed against it. They said, I want to go my own way. There was spiritual death, and as a result, they transmitted down to us this veil of sin and darkness and death over the image of God within us, but it's still there. But that veil means that our entire personalities have been affected by sin. Every component of what makes us human, so to speak, has been affected. Physically, we're affected. There's disease and death, the outer man, but also the inner man is affected. Uh, Our mind, our emotions, our will, our conscience. None of them work as God has designed them to work. I want you to look with me in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17. Ephesians 4 verse 17. Paul's writing, he says, So this I say, And affirm together with the Lord that you walk or you live your life. No longer just as the Gentiles also live out their lives in the futility of their mind. Being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Why are they ignorant of God? Because they're not smart enough to understand God? Because they don't have information about God? No, but because of the hardness of the heart. The mind doesn't work properly. 
This illustrates for us the limitations of apologetics. You can master all of the arguments for the existence of God and the historicity of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can win every argument and the person doesn't trust Christ. Why? Because it's not just an intellectual exercise. It is spiritual. It's spiritual. And the mind doesn't work properly because the mind is fallen, which is such a blow to so many in an academic community. But our minds don't work as God designed our minds to work. There's a beautiful word in Greek that talks about reasoning well to the wrong conclusion because we're fallen creatures. Our emotions are not aligned with reality frequently. Jeremiah 17 tells us the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all else. The longer you walk with the Lord, the more you understand your own incredible capacity to deceive yourself. The heart is desperately wicked. It is deceitful above all else. The will is broken. It's fractured. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 7. He says, boy, there's a part of me that really wills and wants and desires to choose God. But there's this other part of me that wants to choose something completely independent and I am torn between the two because you don't make a decision apart from your mind and your emotions. See, we're not actually these fractured beings. We're just one. These terms just kind of help us understand ourselves as a whole. And when you put this package together of body and mind and emotions and will, what you see is a whole picture of a person that has been affected by sin. That's why it is so difficult to keep in step with the Spirit. So what's the solution? I want to look at our next major category of theology, soteriology. It's the doctrine of salvation or rescue. Rescued from what? This horrible condition that we're stuck in. All right? I want you to turn with me to John chapter 3. There's several significant theological terms that we could use to kind of sum up the whole doctrine of salvation. Uh, regeneration is one of the best of them. John chapter 3, Jesus is teaching about regeneration to Nicodemus. Look with me in chapter 3 and verse 1. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees, in other words, one who knew the law, obeyed the law. He was of the strictest sect. He was named Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. He's a man who had significant position and authority in the nation of Israel. But when he met Jesus, he said, boy, there's something different about the way that this man lives and the way that this man teaches. It says, this man came to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. One of the things I love most about Jesus' teaching is that people come to him and they have a question, they ask their question, and then Jesus answers whatever he feels like answering. (laughs) This is what we really need to talk about. We need to talk about regeneration, so that's what we'll talk about. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Nicodemus now is totally confused. He said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? That's a pretty good question, I think. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said you must be born again. 
Now, what Jesus is saying, I think, essentially is this. There are two births. The first is physical, the birth through water. You've all experienced that. Here you are. But there's a second birth that must be experienced, and it's the birth of the Spirit. Because when you are born into the world as descendants of Adam and Eve, your spirit is separated. Again, not non-existent, but it is dead. It is separated from the life of God. So your spirit is constantly moving independently from God. The moment that you are reborn, your spirit is reunited with the spirit of God. You are spiritually alive. Since we have life in the spirit, let us also keep in step with the spirit. That's regeneration. You're born again. Second time. You now have life. Paul talks about it in other theological terms as well. In Galatians, he talks about justification. The moment that you're born again, you believe Jesus died for your sins, removed the debt of your sins, gives you eternal life. What happens? You're declared to be right. You meet the standard. The standard is the perfection of the glory of God. Do you meet it through your works? Absolutely not. You meet it because of the accomplishments of Christ's righteousness. I trust in that. You're justified. You're redeemed. You were a slave. You've been rescued out of slavery and now brought into freedom of the children of God. You're reconciled. You're put back in a right relationship with God. And then you're given the promise that was initially given to Abraham, but never fulfilled for generation after generation after generation. But because Christ was faithful, God said, now, Jesus, you can give them the promise. And what is that promise? Do you remember? Galatians 3, verse 14. It's the promise of... Okay, we're going to be in Galatians all spring, I guess. There we go. Okay, spirit. That's right. It's the promise of the spirit. You see how, how it's all coming back around? How can you reflect the very image and glory of God if your spirit is separated from God's spirit? The promises that were given to Abraham were not simply so that a small ethnic community could get a small rocky piece of land. Those promises were given to Abraham so that humanity could get fixed because we are dead, spiritually separated from the life of God. The promise to Abraham was the promise of life that we could be reunited with God. So the moment that you trust in Jesus Christ, you get the gift of the indwelling spirit. God's spirit lives inside of you. God's spirit seals you over until the day of redemption. You belong to God forever. Then God's spirit begins this process of progressively transforming you more and more and more back into the image for which you were originally created, the image of God reflected, radiated out through your personality as a man or woman made in the image of God. So why is it such a struggle? I want you to look with me in Galatians chapter 5 again. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Verse 25, since we have life in the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Because you're spiritually alive, you can now hear the voice of the Spirit. As a believer, you can hear the voice of the Spirit through prayer, through the Word, through fellow believers, through things that you read, through impressions that He places on your mind at different points in time. You can be led by the Spirit. You can listen to the Spirit. 
That is the beauty of being a Christian. So you can follow now the Spirit's lead once again. Or you can keep listening to the flesh. Because the moment that you experienced regeneration, the flesh was not removed. It's still there. Look at chapter 5, verse 17. For the flesh sets its desire against, literally, he says, the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Notice that he is talking about believers because non-believers do not have the Spirit dwelling in them. He is talking about Christians. The flesh that you possess, Christians, sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. What are the things that you please? Well, sometimes the things that I please are the things of the Spirit and sometimes the things that I please are the things of the flesh. There's a commentator named Ernest Burton who put it like this. Does the man choose evil? The spirit opposes him. Does he choose good? The flesh hinders him. And as a result, he cannot do the things that he pleases. He is in constant conflict because of this thing called flesh. Let me define it for you. Flesh is our stubborn commitment to make life work independently from God. And you're all guilty of it. So am I. The flesh can manifest itself in outward righteousness or outright rebellion. It can never be improved. It can never be reformed. It can never be trusted. It is the traitor within. You are stuck with it until the day that God takes your current physical being, crushes it, and gives you a resurrection body because flesh is rooted in your body. Now, I think that's why Paul uses kind of this intentionally uh, ambiguous word, Flesh, as I've said before, it's a physical term at its root. Okay? It's, it's body, it's skin, it's bone. That's, that's flesh. But Paul imports spiritual concepts into a physical term because what he's saying is this stubborn commitment to make life work independently from God is actually embedded all the way down into your cellular structure. And the only way you get rid of it is die. <laughs> So the moment that you're regenerated, you still have flesh embedded all the way down into your cellular structure. The more mature you become as a believer in Jesus Christ and you have your senses trained to discern good and evil, the more you listen to the voice of the Spirit and you see the fruit of the Spirit manifested in your life, you still have the flesh. It never leaves you. It never, ever, ever leaves you. And so the more mature you become, the moment you drop your guard your defenses against the flesh, what happens? It's right there, okay? Sin is crouching at the door, we're told, waiting for you to let down your guard and not realize you are in the middle of spiritual warfare. That is the nature of the Christian life. We do people such a disservice by not telling them the moment that you trust Christ, man, the battle is on. Now the battle has begun, before you just had flesh, and your flesh might manifest itself in self-righteousness or self-indulgence, but it was still flesh. Now you have the Spirit, and there are two competing voices, and you can listen to the voice of the Spirit, and you will be transformed. 
But if you let down your guard, you'll listen to the voice of the flesh. It's right there. Satan is always trying to provoke the flesh constantly, people. Constantly. Satan never gives up. He's just waiting for another opportunity. Remember, even in Jesus' temptation, when he's out in the wilderness, Satan tempts him and he tempts him for 40 days. We only have three of the temptations recorded, but for 40 days, he's going at Jesus. And he finally gives up for the moment. And it says in Luke that he departed from him until a more opportune moment. And he's looking for Jesus' vulnerabilities all the time. Well, you know what? He's doing the same with you. And he's learning your flesh and what provokes your flesh. Your flesh is always there. No matter how mature you become as a believer in Jesus Christ, you will always have a battle with the flesh until the moment you see Jesus Christ face to face. Now, I get really frustrated when I read books currently on on, uh, the spiritual life, the popular stuff that's out there. You will see a phrase in most of the literature that I see right now on spiritual life, they'll use this phrase, it's called the real you, okay? And the idea is that the real you only wants righteousness. And the real you only wants holiness. That's the real you. And so you wake up in the morning and you realize, I don't want righteousness today. What I want today is, I don't even want to ask God his opinion about today. I just want to do my thing today. Maybe I'm not a Christian. Because the real me always wants righteousness. Well, let me tell you who the real you is. Right there. This package. You, right now. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, indwelled by the Spirit. Sealed over for the day of redemption. Embedded with the flesh. In the middle of a spiritual warfare. And if you're not aware of the fact that you're in warfare, then you're going to lose every time. But when you're aware that you're in warfare and you understand the weapons of your warfare and you understand progressively how to listen to the voice of the Spirit, God can transform you. Okay? God can change you and make you more and more and more into the image of Christ. You can be a different person next year than you are today. You can be a different person tomorrow than you are today. That's the doctrine of sanctification or progressive restoration of the image of God in you. Look with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 18. 2 Corinthians 3.18 But we all with unveiled face. Why is the face unveiled? Because we're no longer looking at God through law, so to speak, through our own self-effort. The veil has been removed. We are seeing God as he is because we're seeing him through Jesus Christ. We believe. Okay, so now we with unveiled face are beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. How is it that we see the glory of the Lord in the mirror? Well, because you've been made in the image of God. We're beholding in a mirror the glory of the Lord. We're being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as from the Lord the Spirit. That's a a summation description of the process of becoming more and more and more like Jesus Christ, that's spiritual life. And I I picked particular verses to try to tie all these themes together for you of your original creation in the image of God as a bearer of the glory of God and now one who possesses the Spirit progressively seeing the glory of God being 
brought out in your personality. Paul describes what that looks like in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23, the fruit of the Spirit. Okay, as opposed to the works of flesh, the fruit of Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Did you notice that he does not give them a list of duties? I'm not saying there's anything wrong with duty necessarily, but in this context, did you notice, he doesn't give them a list of duties. He talks about the fruit, the manifestation of the Spirit, because when I'm being led by the Spirit, when I'm letting the Spirit lead and be in control of my life, I'm responding to the voice of the Spirit, I'm walking in unison with the Spirit, then these things will naturally occur in my life. And I don't need a list of things to do. I don't need law. That's what he's been getting at in Galatians. I don't need law. If I'm loving my friend Ralph, meaning I'm giving to Ralph and I expect nothing in return. Because that's how Christ gave to me. I'm loving Ralph in spite of, of, of anything about his personality that I may not say, ah, oh, it's not my favorite, or things he's done to me in the past, sins against me, anything like that. I'm still choosing to love Ralph. I'm doing good for Ralph. All the good I can possibly do for Ralph, I'm doing for Ralph, expecting nothing in return. That's Christ-like love. And I can do that because Christ has filled me. That's the only reason I can do that. And so I'm giving to Ralph, and I'm giving to Ralph, and I'm loving Ralph. I don't need my other friend Jeff to say to me, hey, Brian, stop stealing from Ralph. Not I'm loving him. I don't need to be told not to steal. Stop lying to Ralph. Why would I think about lying to him? Because I love him. See what I'm saying? I don't need a list of duties if I'm fulfilling the royal law or what he calls the law of Christ, which is the summation of the law, which is love your neighbor as yourself, because I'm manifesting the fact that the Spirit is the one I'm listening to. I'm listening to his voice. And so this morning I am resisting any urge to give you a list of things to go out and do this week. What I want you to go do this week is listen for the voice of the Spirit. I want you to think about your life. Are there patterns in your life which basically cause you to do this to the voice of the Spirit. Put your fingers in your ears. That's really, that, was, that was dramatic for me right there. Can you hear me? You can't hear me. You can't hear me. Okay. That's really, that was dramatic. I didn't, hadn't done that in the first service. Everything just tuned out. The whole auditorium got quiet. We have patterns in our life. Basically, we just plug our ears to the voice of the Spirit. Or we can also create patterns in our lives that open us up to the voice of the Spirit so I can hear, I can feel the touch of the Spirit, so I can move in unison. You know? And then people look at my life and they say, look at those good works. I mean, genuinely good works. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. <laughs> I know, Brian, he couldn't do that. How, how is it happening? I point to the Spirit. So all that I want you to do this week is I want you to think through where are the patterns where you're really making yourself uh, open to the voice of the Spirit. 
And where are there patterns in your life where you're really resisting listening to the voice of the Spirit? Uh, as we close, we're going to share communion together. If, if men are, uh, who are serving communion would go back and get ready for that. Uh, communion is, um, I think, a beautiful way to, to close our time together because uh, even the word itself, communion, a community, it's something that the early church did together. Jesus brought his disciples together, and as a group, he said to them, now, uh, together, let us be one. Each of us listening to the voice of the Spirit, following the leadership of the Spirit, moving in unison with the Spirit, and consequently moving in unison with one another, right? And how is it that we move in unison with the Spirit and move consequently in unison with one another? It's because we're united through Jesus Christ. Communion is that reminder. The bread is the reminder that his body was broken physically. He physically suffered so that every single one of us, every man, Every woman, every child could have forgiveness of sins. His blood poured out to remove the debt of sin. So we all wait for one another. We're served together. We take it together because it's a reminder of the unity that we have with the Spirit, which causes us to walk with Him. He's glorified in our lives individually. We walk with Him. He's glorified in us as a communion, a community of people. So I would like for you just to take a few moments as we're served just to give thanks to God for the gift of his spirit through Jesus Christ. Okay. Would the men come forward, please, and serve us? And then I'll close this in prayer in just a moment. Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. Breaking it, he reminded them that it was a symbol or a picture of his body the physical suffering that he would undergo because of our sins. Let's take the bread together. Then Jesus took the cup and reminded his disciples, and through his disciples reminded us that the cup represented his blood, which would make a payment for our sins. Let's take the cup together. Father, we thank you for the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. Freedom from fear of death, freedom from the penalty of sin and its power in our lives, freedom to love, Father, freedom, freedom to not be consumed with ourselves, but to enjoy and find fulfillment in being consumed with your will and surrendering our own will, freedom in giving to others and loving others. Father, I thank you for all that Christ has accomplished for us and all that he is accomplishing in our lives, and I pray, Lord, that This week you would continue to teach us to listen and walk according to the voice of your spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's close with an old hymn. We'll stand and sing together. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt yonder on Calvary's mount outpour there where the blood of the Lamb was spilled grace grace God's grace grace that will pardon and cleanse within 
Father, we thank you for the grace that is greater than all of our sin. We thank you, Father, for the freedom that you've purchased us in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that you have made us alive. You have caused us to be born again through your spirit. And now, once again, our spirit united with your spirit, we can listen, we can respond. We can walk with you and see you lead and direct in our lives and produce fruit of your spirit that's beyond anything we could possibly think to do. Father, I pray for each person individually, and I also pray for us as a body of believers that we would increasingly see the fruit of the spirit manifested in our lives, and we would be a testimony to this community. It's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving.